a lot of my channel is based on near-death experience stuff, which it wasn't meant to be. But so many people come through with that. My mind was basically just around consciousness and life and general things. But geez, there's so many more people on near-death experiences than any other subject that it just seems to mostly revolve around that now. Well, you know, and I've, I've shared this on the show. I, it's funny you should say that, Darren, because I kind of came around in the same way in that if you start with consciousness and then it just gets muddy, the water gets muddy when you start talking about parapsychology and then, you know, precognition and, and all this kind of different stuff. And then even spirituality, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, boom, near-death experience cuts through all that. One, mm. because it's, it, the medical part of it is, is good in a lot of ways. It takes a lot of that infighting. I mean, the whole parapsychology thing, the thing that gets me is some of those people are atheists. Yeah. It's like, I don't know how you're processing that. Mm. How are you processing that from an atheistic, uh, materialistic, you're going to jam it back into science? It's just stupid to me. It's it just is. incredibly dumb, you know? I think so, a, lot, a lot of it seems to be kind of the definition of atheism. Um, so a lot of it, when you think of God, you think initially and immediately of, of the Christian Muslim God and some kind of individual entity that overlooks everything, which I don't believe in. I believe in more Why of not? kind of... Why not? See, hold on, because that's a problem. That's something I've been drilling into too lately. It's that, and I was just editing an interview I did with, um, round, long way around the barn here, but maybe it's good. I was interviewing Dr. Hugh Urban, who is a religious studies professor at Ohio State University. And he wrote this book on Scientology, and he wrote this book on Osho, and we were talking about, and then I was kind of hammering a little bit, I'm on, you know, the Pope and Christianity and stuff like that. He goes, hey, you know, there's a long, his as a historian, there's been a lot of bad popes and bad cardinals, and back then through the Middle Ages, you know, we went through a whole period where there were, and that doesn't mean that the whole church is corrupt from top to bottom. I go, hold on, full stop. You don't know that. That doesn't prove that the fact that there were a string of it. What that's evidence that it's not corrupt from the top to the bottom. And I, that's a strange way of responding to your thing. But I'd say the same thing. We don't know that Jesus's uh, Christ consciousness is real. We don't know that Buddha is real. We don't know that Muhammad is. Uh, you know, we 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 claim to understand the mind of God and the order of the extended realm. We don't, and that's the freaking problem i think that we run into is we're we're so we're so caught in this crazy christianity on one hand that overlay on the other hand and this atheistic overlay on the other hand that we always have to go we have to check ourselves and go well i don't believe in that kind of god that sees all and knows all no what we have to say is we do not understand the order of the extended consciousness realm. We do not understand the mind of God, and yet we are forced to confront the reality that there is this extended realm, and we're not going to fall back into uh, biological robot meaningless universe bullshit that, that, science, that, that, that we've been forced into, and I think is incredibly uh, conspiratorial, the way that, that that has been, that meme has been perpetuated. And that's something I bring up all the time, and everyone wants to go, well, you know, 
people believe crazy things and they're just trying to, you know, oh, they're, they're just look at the advances that have been made in science and all the rest of that. And it doesn't, it doesn't add up to, to me, what it adds up to is the same thing that we see in religion is that it's primarily a vehicle of control, Mm -hmm. manipulation and power. And then we see the same thing in science, a means of control, manipulation and power in order to perpetuate a particular worldview that is the biological robot meaningless universe great way to control people and i think it has a purpose and a direction and i think it's been perpetuated intentionally mm-hmm. i think the problem with science is it's it's been very kind of misunderstood recently as, as a basis that it's basically a materialistic process which to me i don't think it is it's not a it's being taken as kind of a scientism kind of basis which i see science as a process not a set set of rules and foundations to live by. It's a process that must keep developing with data that comes out. And um, when I was watching your interview with Michael Shermer, one thing I pointed out, or I, I pointed out, I picked up on was that um, when you mentioned about, um, or he sorry mentioned about consciousness, you must believe that consciousness uh, separates from the brain at death. How do you explain how the consciousness can see without eyes and and hear without ears and whatever? And you think, but that's not the that's not the point. The point is. Our job is to show you that this happens. We don't know how it happens. It's not our job to explain it, but the data that we see shows that it does happen. And that's the point. It's not a case of explaining how. It's showing that it it occurs. Yeah, there's a lot there in in terms of science that that is is awesome and wonderful and can be processed in so many ways. And so a couple of things I I did. One, the falsification of a theory is a valuable contribution to science. And it doesn't mean that you have to substitute it with another theory, right? So just to falsify materialism is a huge step forward. It, and, and then let's like the Shermer, you know, good. We, we poke at Shermer, but he's really bringing up something good and important in, in his misstep. His misstep is to say, well, then how does it work? And it's like, I don't know how it fucking works. Mm-hmm. I just tell you, your thing doesn't stand up to scrutiny. It doesn't stand up to the best data that we have. The other thing that that the skeptics help us understand in their miserable understanding of science is that science is skeptical. No, science is not skeptical. To suggest that science is skeptical suggests that science has a pre, you know, a pre bias. Yeah. It's no skeptical is like uh, you could you could it's semantics now, but you could say the opposite. Science is the opposite of skeptical. Science is completely open. Whatever you have, bring it forward. If it's a great idea, we want it. Let's test it and see if it works. You you could state it in the opposite of skeptical terms, and 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 that would be the true you know yeah. meaning of science. So it seemed that science would be. Um, from my definition, is the process of um, finding data, trying to explain a possible theory as to how it would fit, and then the scepticism is kind of the policing of that to make sure it's done in an open way, but with restraints to stop it getting kind of in a in a ridiculous out of out of touch way. But the problem is with consciousness is is it's it's um providing possibilities that are so beyond what we currently understand and what we currently accept as reality that that skepticism which is stuck in that materialistic fashion is going to be very 
harsh because it's anticipating a complete switch of how we think the brain and consciousness are um, related. Well, and and I'd kind of maybe throw mo- one other thing on the table there that's really uncomfortable. And, you know, I just did an interview with uh, Dr. Donald Hoffman, who is really, really quite brilliant guy. And uh, is he the case against reality? He is. Yeah. And he's proposed a rigorous mathematical model for consciousness that suggests that consciousness is fundamental and not materialistic, which is really kind of an, another kind of strange oxymoron in a way, you know, a mathematical model for <laughs> consciousness is fundamental. And I think therein lies the problem. If you really think about it, philosophy has a lot to say here. If you can get past it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Science has obsoleted itself. So, and I didn't even, I, I wrote, you know, why science is wrong about almost everything a few years ago. I remember Rupert Sheldrick, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick was nice enough to write the forward to the book, but he was like, wow, I don't know if I can really write a forward to this book. Mm. And moreover, he said, I don't really know if I believe this, you know? Well, I think, I mean, I'm even more convinced of the basic premise of that book, which is that if science doesn't understand consciousness, it can't get anything right. And the further extension of that is science obsoletes itself when it understands that consciousness is fundamental. If consciousness is fundamental and consciousness is fundamental, then science has obsoleted itself because the whole uh, proposition of science is that we will measure and therefore interpret the external reality from our measurements. And now Don Hoffman is telling us that every experiment ever done with at CERN, let alone every uh, quantum physics experiment, has come to the same conclusion that reality cannot be measured. Reality is not out there. Reality is part of this broader thing of consciousness. Well, then every question in science becomes the famous, how many angels fit on the head of a pin? you know, quip that Carl Sagan made many years ago. And he was like, he was saying the opposite. It was a Michael Shermer kind of thing. He doesn't know it, but he's kind of really giving up the ghost by saying something different than what he thought he was saying. But it is. How do you, how is science not burdened by that question on every, on every experiment that's ever done? Okay, yeah, that's your result. But did you measure how many angels were in the experiment? They're like, well, what do you mean? They're like, that has to be considered now. That has to be on the table. So there is no more, in some sense, it's all just science becomes this just kind of approximation game. I mean, I'm not familiar with the with the angels on the head of the pin kind of analogy. Could you explain that? I think what you mean? I, I, if I, uh, <laughs> I'm not getting this wrong, but I think that's a famous quote from Carl Sagan. You know, he's talking about the absurd of the supernatural kind of proposition and and it's kind of bolstering science as we know it kind of thing to say, well, you know, you, then you can't measure how many angels on the head of a pen. It's a, it's a stupid idea, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and my point is that when we come around fully to understand consciousness, it no longer looks like a stupid idea. It looks like a kind of a little bit, weird question but it's it's a question that starts gaining some 
legitimacy in terms of, you know, like, like, so Darren, you, you were talking about near death experience. And my point is I'm very interested and have been very interested in near death experience because it bridges this gap between science and this extended consciousness slash spirituality stuff, but it doesn't really end there. I mean, what do we do with accounts of angels? Do we just kind of dismiss that? I mean, we experientially, we can stack those right up right next to the near-death experience, and they're in the near-death experience. So what do we do with angels? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I'm just saying that becomes a scientific question. Because it's feeding into this consciousness at the base of everything, panpsychism. And if that's well, kind of been validated, then we have to open the scope to these more, what would originally be classed as um, angelic experiences. Paranormal. And I'm not saying that directly. I'm just saying you, you walk this path, you know, <laughs> and you're walking it like it sounds like you're walking it and, and I'm walking it is that you, you start with near death experience science, right? And it's also interesting. I'm kind of bouncing all over, but this is fun. I get, you have a very open style here, so we can talk about anything. You know, if you look at the history of near-death experience science in the last 20 years, and you look at even in the last 20 years while I've been doing Skeptico, the pushback, the in, in, incredibly kind of out-of-proportion pushback, like when uh, Dr. Evan Alexander comes out with his book, Proof of Heaven. <clears throat> And there's just this uproar, you know, and Sam Harris is out there and, you know, who else is out there? All these guys are out there. He's on the cover of Newsweek magazine. Oh, my God, this is ridiculous. You know, all this organized pushback on this idea. Well, and it seemed to be out of proportion with just some doctor who says, hey, I what, what a lot of people have said for a long time, even at that point, that I died. And I had this experience, this extraordinary experience after I died. Well, I think the pushback, when you really look at it through a little bit longer lens, is they realize the implications of going down this path in a scientific way that Eben Alexander was, because he's a Harvard neurosurgeon. He yeah. knew the science. He knew the neuroscience. And he's saying, I know my medical condition. And he brought it to the medical thing. He says, I know my medical condition would not, in our current neurological model, account for the kind of conscious experience I had. So therefore, and that's the therefore, the therefore puts us on the brink, on the edge, at the edge of the chasm where we have to say, okay, therefore, I have to take seriously the account. I have to incorporate that into our reality. And in particular, we have to because that account happened at a time when there can be no consciousness, conscious thought in the way that we understand it. So I guess what I'm saying is near-death experience, you can look at the science and you can look at it really narrowly like we all, like some people like to do medical, well, is it last gap of the dying brain? Is it hypoxia? Is it all the rest of this. But once you get past all that, then you have to deal with the accounts. You have to deal with the accounts because if you're going to let if you're going to let the medical data in, then you 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 know it's like talking to someone on uh, depression 
research. And after you do all the checks of their blood levels and everything else, you say, or on pain research, and you check all that out and you say, okay, what was the, what was the pain like? What was the depression like? I mean, you, you, you have to go mm -hmm. there. And this is the problem again, res resulting around anecdotal experience or anecdotal evidence, which is taken very, very lightly in the scientific community. But the problem with that is in this sort of area, which is very subjective in nature, what other form of evidence can we have other than the Sampania, um, Penny Sartori um, targets yeah, that they set up? I, I think this is another misunderstanding we have about uh, about science. And of course, when you talk to real scientists, real researchers, especially in the medical profession, they're quick to say, because they know, this anecdotal thing is a bullshit thing that, science, that uh, skeptics have kind of perpetuated. Again, if you're talking about depression, and you're researching depression, you're researching grief, you're researching pain, it's anecdotal experience, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about your grief. Oh, that's anecdotal. Talk about if you have pain. Did you ever experience pain? Really? Did you? Oh, it's anecdotal. Yeah. Right? So there could be some biological part to it, but that would always be tied back to, even, you know, even if somebody jumps in there and goes, no, you, you, you know, you could measure it, you know, neurologically, <clears throat> only to an extent. You, you would correlate that with your personal experience. And the difference between personal experience and anecdotal is how many of those cases you collect, right? Yeah. So if I start putting together a survey, I start, I initially talk to people about what their pain is and how they experienced and what the sensation was. Well, it was like a burning pain and it moved up my arm. Anecdotal, anecdotal, anecdotal. Oh, it's not an anecdotal. <laughs> That's how we do medical science. We talk about what you experienced and we look at collectively those experiences across a broad section of people and we categorize them different ways. It's not fucking anecdotal. No, especially not at the level, the number of people that we have coming forward and experiencing the same thing with very and that slight. Just becomes, that just becomes another variable in the experiment. How many people do you need? How, what, what are your controls? How many different groups do you need? How do you control the different... You know, it, it's it's just silly the way that it's all designed really to perpetuate a certain belief that people, whatever that belief is that they have. But I mean, again, think about that. How is it any different in all those in all those cases? So going back to the likes of Sampania and Penny Sartori studies where they had um, targets set up, which is ultimately seen as kind of the holy grail of, of evidence. If Why? It was a stupid idea from the beginning. You know, you go back to the first interview I had with Sam Parnia. I, 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 I mean, I don't know. I, I, I just always, I, I, I really like the guy, respect the guy in one sense. And on the other hand, I don't understand. I, I, it seems to me like he was always trying to have his cake and eat it too in terms of he wanted to seek some kind of respectability in terms of a traditional scientific community that was going to be totally against what his findings were, and he wanted to somehow appease them with some carefully worded yeah. language about whether he really thought this was a trick of the mind, as he said on my show, and initially he said he would have to conclude that it probably is a trick of the mind 
that as a materialistic explanation was possible. And then a few years later, he finally came out and said, well, you know, I really don't think that is. It's just nonsense. The experiment that, that he designed, I thought was just a poorly designed experiment because the idea, again, for people who don't know, his experiment was we will put little uh, uh, symbols in places above the cardiac arrest patient where they couldn't see it lying down, but I presume they would be able to see it if they were in a certain position outside of their body. Stupid. Stupid. Because one, that we already knew at that point that this out-of-body experience wasn't always in the same point. Sometimes people were in a corner of the room. Sometimes people were on the side of the room. Sometimes, how do you control for that variable? Again, it's how many angels fit on the head of a pin. You know, yeah. we don't even understand. We have no idea for for understanding what that mechanism would be, and yet we're going to try and measure it. Mm. <clears throat> it's stupid. It was a stupid idea from the beginning. Much so, you have to be careful when you enter this realm. I always remember the words of. Uh, uh, Dr. Julie Byshell, who's famous for her uh, mediumship research, work, mediumship research, right? And the way she put it, you know, because she had a lot of skeptics coming at her, you know, and she really crushed the skeptics with her research because she was a PhD, was is a PhD in pharmacology, knew how to put together a research project, and knew how to control for things. She goes, but in biology, we do not put, we do not take a seed and put it on a lab table and say, grow. Now we will measure whether or not you grow. No, we try and create, we control the conditions and we then measure within the controls that we have, but we don't create a completely artificial environment and then demand that we can measure no, things in a certain no, way. And, right. uh, you know, with uh, I, I think that's what... Parnia did. I don't know why he took that misstep, but it's, it's, let me flip over because I don't want to sound like I'm totally bashing the guy. I understand, you know, gosh, the guy's got to make a living. Yeah. He, he right. has to work inside of a, 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 a completely silly, in, in my opinion, you know, academic system, but he has to survive in that. He can't, you know, just. He can't so, be risking his, his, his credentiality, if that's a word, if you know what I mean. And so he's trying to do both, right? Yeah. Which is good. And in that process, you know, to his credit, maybe he was the smartest of us all <laughs> to to realize that, you know, seeking the credibility, gaining the credibility, being invited into the conferences, not upsetting people. Maybe he was able to advance the message in a way that he wouldn't be able to do otherwise. An analysis, the final analysis, that's definitely true. So, you know, the rage against the machine thing, doesn't work either. But I actually no. think the work of of Dr. Penny Sartori, who you referenced, is just turned out to be a better way to go to help us really nail down the reality of that. Because again, her research, as you know, and maybe you've talked about on your I, show. I've spoken to her, yeah. It was a while you, ago, though. I've got you to, have spoken with her? I have spoken with her, yeah. Very nice lady. Love her accent. So, love her accent? <laughs> yeah, Welsh. Oh, it's brilliant. It's like singing. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. You know, I don't know a lot about uh, British accents, so it, it's kind oh, of like... So, there's so many. Most of them sound absolutely terrible, but the Welsh is very nice. I like the Welsh accent and the Northern 
all Irish. <laughs> she she does have a she does have a beautiful way of uh, of speaking. But again, you know, her work was to say, okay, back to the interview thing, back to the control group, we'll go in the cardiac arrest ward, and we'll create a <laughs> we'll create a control group of people who recover from a heart from a heart attack. Our control group are people who have no recollection of a near-death experience, and our other group is the people who had the near-death experience, mm -hmm. and, and then them. we will yeah. measure their recollections of their resuscitation, and we'll see if there's any difference. Nice, simple, clean experiment yields huge results, very statistically significant results in terms of people who had the near-death experience are able to re recall their resuscitation. And when she asks the same questions for the people who don't, they're like, what are you talking about? I wasn't dead. Wasn't How would dead. I remember? Yeah. 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 And it was, she was saying that the control group usually tried to either make educated guesses, which turned out to be erroneous in nature, or they were trying to kind of relate it to what they'd seen on the television and build a mental image like that, which was, again, of course, was erroneous. And yet the near-death experiences themselves were much more accurate, which is I think was she the first perspective study or the first kind of well-known perspective study of that kind. I don't know, kind. but you know, did, you said you talked to Jan Holden. Yeah. Recently. Lovely lady. She's I like Jan. I like her too. And I really respect, you know, she's a scientist. She's got rigor to what she does. And she yeah. replicated that study from what I understand. She did that study as well. And then I think as I think Parnia in his most recent one, has something similar in the way that either indirectly or indirectly through his, you know, look for the thing on the ceiling thing. He kind of backed into that as well. Hmm. And, and I interviewed recently Tom Jump, um, T Jump. Oh, 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 that's and hilarious. and his, which I thought initially, um, before I kind of had a chance to think about it, that his explanation of veridical perception (AVP) during near-death experiences was somewhat reasonable the fact that um these memories are stored are are stored unconsciously during the process during the period of unconsciousness but then recalled later as if it was experienced consciously because obviously a memory like that how would you know if it was a actual conscious experience or an experience saved as as if it was consciousness it's an illusion but then later on thinking about that and talking about that with jan she's she's right when you think that well Conscious experience we know takes place when the brain is operating at a level kind of this this size. The measure it, it, it's <laughs> as you put it, the the measurable activity is in a certain level of we're able to measure it. So that's during consciousness. During these periods of cardiac arrest or deep anesthesia, when your brain's operating at this level, how I don't see how any kind of memory storage can take place if we know it's required here. We know at this point it's unconscious and there's no memory storage or whatever. And then at this point, suddenly there's that cap capability again. It doesn't seem to make sense to me. If, does You're that make right. sense? No, it doesn't make sense. And it never has made sense. And it's an idea that was floated out there when this stuff first started occurring and it was completely dismissed. I mean, anyone who's seriously studied consciousness from a neuroscience standpoint there's no there the, the, it, it's it's kind of throwing a whole different god of the gaps kind of thing in there of saying well maybe there's some way that conscious memories could be stored and later recalled 
that is completely outside of our current model of neuroscience. Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say on one hand, I don't believe in near-death experience because it violates our understanding of near-death of neuroscience. And then on the other hand, say, well, uh, you know, there must be some different kind of neuroscience that would explain it. You can't yeah. have it both ways. Mm. Especially at this level where we know constant experience is, is not possible. But even if we were to say, right, for, okay, for some experiences, for some near-death experiences, that would work if we knew for a fact that at this level during cardiac arrest, unconscious memory could be stored. I don't know if, if it can or not. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm assuming it can't. But if that works for some, for example, that still doesn't account for the experiences in which veridical perception was taking place in a location far away from the physical body. And I know Tom's and I know other skeptics' explanation for that is, well, they hear people talking about something that happened a long way away and they build up that mental image. And as Jan was saying, for example, with the account where an amputated leg was seen put into a yellow bag. Do you know of that one? No, not that one in particular. Oh, uh, that was during a an operation. Um, the person had an OBE during, I don't know if it was cardiac arrest, I think it was just under anesthesia. They had an out-of-body experience and witnessed in another operating theatre uh, an amputated leg being put into a yellow bag, uh, which was naturally verified later on um, by the staff. And the sceptic explanation for that is that these doctors were speaking about this that took place, talking about how they put the leg in the bag or whatever, and therefore the memory is created during unconsciousness and replayed as if consciously experienced, which possible, but to me it seems very reaching, very clutching at straws to assume that such a routine thing like that would be discussed, especially to the level of the colour of the bag around a patient during unconsciousness or after. Yeah, I think it's it's a kind of a why people believe weird things kind of question in terms of why skeptics would go there. It's like if you ever want to talk to, you know, a fundamentalist Christian about Noah's Ark. And, you know, I was tell the story when I interviewed this guy, Chris White. And we're actually having a pretty good conversation. And he goes, you know about the nails, right? I'm like, he goes, well, now we do have ev archaeological evidence that they were able to produce nails. Yeah, as if that and explains the, the uh, fact. Right. How can you get that number of animals on a boat at all? Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, well, that wasn't my hang-up, Chris. That wasn't my hang-up with the ark thing, you know? And it's like, as if, you know, that would possibly kind of make yeah. sense and, and, and explain away thousands of people now that have had these experiences, the work of respected cardiologists, radiation oncologists, other medical professionals, you know, around the world that have come to this conclusion. And, and then it's like, oh, no, did you, you know, this some simplistic kind of stupid explanation. Oh, okay. I get it. You know, it was the nails in the ark. That's what made it possible for Noah to do that. And I mean, the thing with that is if I'm going, I mean, there's so many different uh, skeptical explanations for the near-death experience out of body and various other um, phenomenological, I keep making up words, but 
um, anomalous experience. There's so many different ones, but who who am I more likely to listen to? A skeptic who's trying to explain these things in a materialistic sense, or accredited scientist who's gone out and researched it themselves and has come to these conclusions along with other very well accredited scientists? I'm more inclined to listen to the researchers themselves. Well, that's tricky too, because then people always come back and say, you know, like you're referencing Shermer. Yeah. And in my discussion with him, I love when he goes, I'm, I said that. I said, okay, peer-reviewed research. He goes, peer review is a red herring. Yeah, really? but then the, the skeptics are always bringing that back to us. You see in all, all the comments, all the discussions, well, where are these peer-reviewed um, studies that people have made to prove this? In one case, it's it's used against us. In other cases, it's dismissed when we provide it. So what do you what do you think about that? I mean, how how do you respond to that? Yeah, because because isn't isn't it true? There's see that's the that's the part of it. There is a truth to there's a lot of shitty peer reviewed papers out there, right? That's his point, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's true. But what you just said is true too. So the the other thing to realize from a kind of I don't know wrestling match standpoint all these guys have to do is pull you into the muddy gutter and they win you know because you don't come out clean you don't you it's just uh, it's just a muddy mess where people have to make their own conclusions well sorry that's all it's ever going to be is a muddy mess where you have to draw your own conclusions at this point i prefer because i really believe this it's over I mean, the skeptical thing is over. You can feel it in the air. You know, you talked about the, the T-jump. When I, I was nice enough, I interviewed, I did an interview with him when he requested me because I've had this kind of anytime, anywhere thing. But after a while, it just gets tiresome because it's so stupid. It's it's stupid arguments that aren't well articulated. It It kind of is a waste of time, but... I don't know. I don't know if I'd continue to. to I did. I did one. You know. You mentioned uh, who's the guy? You see uh, Riverside. Oh, John Fisher. John Fisher. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I. I feel like I have to talk to John Fisher because he has the academic credentials. Because he puts out these videos. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The 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 the, the lack of scholarship in the work that that he produced. You know the John Fisher story. Is is interesting to me because when they because they got four million dollars from the Templeton Foundation to do research on near death experience, that isn't a ton of money really, but in this world, that's a fortune. In the kind of near death experience, you know, you give, how much money has Jan Holden gotten? She ain't got no four million dollars, no, or, or no, it's very very underfunded. All this stuff is very underfunded. So you know, the fact that he was able to finagle that money. One, that's a deep conspiratorial question there, particularly since the the Templeton Foundation, John Templeton was a very spiritual guy. He was a very Christian guy, but he took the Christianity out of it. He said, I want to continue to promote the exploration of science and religion. And then, boom, it gets sidetracked and gets sent to this clown over here who writes this silly book about it just was it was silly. It was the, the conclusions were silly. The the uh, 
it doesn't stand up to serious academic scrutiny. And it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever looked at this, Jaren, but have you ever looked at the Edinburgh thing, the University of Edinburgh, and how they initially had this whole, this chair for parapsychology research, and it got totally co-opted by these atheists who took it over and turned it into a, you know, why people believe weird things, kind of right. the opposite. Flipped. Yeah. They, they, they flipped it. Well, they're not supposed to be able to flip it. Well, how do they flip it? They flip it. I don't know. Very clever. It, these people would make very good car salesmen, wouldn't they? Or or uh, New World Order people. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know much about John Fisher. I'm not a philosopher. I don't. I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to be. I just try and you know take data from both sides and corroborate it and come up with my own conclusions. Um, but I'd like to get back to I mean, if we can kind of wander away from the NDE because it's very we've spoken a lot about that and there are of course other um, evidence. My my main area of focus is the survival of life after death. That's my main focus. And NDEs. Why is, is a that big your part. main focus? It came originally from um, because I've had anxiety and depression since I was twelve which stemmed from a fear of death, which is very good ammo against me for confirmation bias and things like that. Um, but I was always absolutely terrified of death and the concept of not not existing. I mean, f- forever, that's a really, uh, to me, it's a terrifying thought. And so I wanted to look into more of it because I've heard, I'd heard of near-death experiences. I'd heard loosely of out-of-body experiences and it, it was interesting, especially for this kind of focus so I started getting into it and looking at it and realizing there is a lot more evidence out there than people would lead you to believe and much more credible outside of just wishful thinking and, and um, anecdotal evidence, you know. So, so why did you just fall into the religious crowd, Darren, or did you? Are you a religious person? I'm not religious, no. I, wasn't, that I like- the, wasn't that the default? I mean, I give you, I give you props for your courage to not immediately go cult on us, which is what happens to a lot of people when they encounter those kind of deep existential fears, you know, right? Isn't that where a lot of people that go, they go religious? They do. I, I, I could never get around the whole idea of, I mean, obviously in England, the main one is Christianity. If I was in India, it'd be Muslim or, or whatever else. But to me, it just, I could never, I never, I always, I've always needed evidence to support a belief or a I say, I suppose a belief is the best word for it. And I had never had that evidence of, of a God that um, came down in the form of Jesus. And I mean, I was brought up in a Christian school and we had to pray every day and read the Bible and I could never get into it. I mean, I'm sure that with the, with the Bible, it's a case of interpretation. And I know there are literalists out there with Noah's Ark and things, but that was never on the cards for me. Cause I say, you know, how would you get, you'd need a whole ark to get every species of insects or half of every species of an insect on it. There's so many. But the idea of heaven and hell, if you believe in Jesus or not, or you believe in God or not, it wasn't, it didn't fit for me. And I could never get into the religion side. I always prefer the science side of things, evidence. That's that's the way I am. So what do you think about what we we're just talking about in terms of the limits of science? So you get to this point and you're 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 approaching an answer to your existential question yeah. and then you know it's like I, it's i'm just reporting position. i'm just reporting what other people are saying but i'm the one who's yeah. saying it now there's no it, answer science is not science is not the answer it just propels us no. into the unknown and that's it science is as i say i think it's it's more it's a process that must be developed as data comes it's not a fixed 
audit list to compare against. And if the data's there, it needs to be looked at seriously and not immediately dismissed. I mean, the phenomenon of astral projection, for instance, the number of people on that that will say, it's all in your mind, it's all this, it's all that. But to me, there's enough people that have experienced it and are saying very, very similar things that it warrants looking into without immediate dismissal. And unfortunately, that seems to happen a lot with the mainstream science, which to me isn't science. Right, but but Darren, what if you what if you take the step, the next step, and say where it propels us is into kind of the nothingness that we're creating all this? That in some way, and I think that's really the takeaway for me, or the the takeaway and really the new starting point is that what we're, our understanding of consciousness is telling us that we are, in a fundamental way, co-creators of this reality that we see. And that can sound really woo-woo, or it can sound incredibly scientific. I was referencing, you know, Donald Hoffman and CERN, and that's what deep physics is telling us. You know, you crush these little bits of matter together. And that's what they're finding is that the observer effect is real. We are creating our reality. And we kind of knew that anyway, as soon as we went into any kind of meditation and started observing our little mind, or you went into lucid dreaming and you, you, you practiced it enough. Like I was never a lucid dreamer, but my son was, and I got curious about it. And I said, wow, could that really be? And then as soon as you have a lucid dream, you realize I'm creating all this. I'm creating this lucid dream. Well, I'm creating all my dreams. Well, are my dreams really that much different from my reality? To what extent am I a co-creator? And that becomes very spiritual. And then now what do you do with that? What do you do with that in your death anxiety? How, how, how do you pack that back in? Because you can't stay on the science island. No, I think for me, it would take an experience like that myself, something I've never had. I've, I've been working towards, you know, more, obviously Robert Monroe and his hemi-sync and things like that. I've, I bought his CDs and I was working through them, trying to achieve an out-of-body experience. Haven't been successful. Um, and I think it would take an experience like that for myself to be able to really root it in deep. I don't know if that's because I was, I've been brought up in this culture of the way science is needing materialistic evidence or whatever even though you know and i think it would take an experience like that to really properly pull me out of intellectual knowledge into experiential knowledge and i don't know how that would affect me because then that would be very personal paradigm shifting and i i don't know because i haven't had that haven't had that experience so i can't say how it would affect me but see i'm pretty dense i'm pretty dense psychically, if you will. I mean, I've done, I've done yoga and meditation for 30 years and I don't have any kind of super profound experiences from it, but I have a lot of little experiences that I think almost everyone, if they're really honest, would say they've had a lot of little experiences or little synchronicities or little, um, dreams or, or whatever they are. But the one thing I guess I challenge because that's what I like to do is if you get to the point of even having a little bit of an awareness, 
if I, I think almost anyone who sits down and does even a little bit of meditation can very quickly, from an intellectual standpoint, reach that point of observing, of being the observer, of realizing that there is a mind that is off running and doing its own thing, and you are not that yeah, thought because, process. Yeah, because it, you can observe it. That entails that you are that witness to the mind, not the mind itself. Precisely. So the fact that you can intellectualize that, Darren, suggests that you've been there. Not that you just think about it, but that you've been there. And I think one of the problems we have with meditation in the West is we don't understand that that is a major awakening experience. There's no explosions that go off or anything else. No, at no, that second yeah. that you were there, at that half a second, millisecond that you were there being the observer, the gig was up right there. The whole thing shifted right there. You just did what I do is you shifted back. You quickly shifted back. You know, a, a few years ago, I, I met with a woman who was on the show and she's really interesting, interesting person and a psychic. And then she moved to San Diego and she came and she wanted to meet and we met and she did like a little reading with me. And she said, she said, Oh, this is interesting. She goes, I get the sense that with your meditation, you get right up to this point and then you get scared and you're like, Oh no, 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 don't go there. And it's interesting because that's exactly what I had experienced for years. And I'm not saying I bro I've broken through that because I haven't, but to intellectually get up to that point, experience it a little bit, and then turn back and go, no, 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 pull it back in, rein it back in, let that old monkey mind take over. That is my experience, and I think that's the experience of so many people, especially men and especially guys like us who are drawn to science and what we think is science and what we think is intellectual thing. And I guess my point is. I wonder if you're really, if you look at it deeper, Darren, if you aren't maybe a little bit further along than you'd be willing to admit in terms of that spirituality that is part of that. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's difficult to say because uh, I suppose the nature of who I am, there's always doubt and there always, there always will be. As you say, that experience of being the witness to the mind is something I've had. And something I use because I'm a training psycho psychotherapist, CBT therapist, uh, which is something I, I plan to incorporate into my therapy, that idea of meditation and, and, and promoting that. And I understand how it works, but there's always that doubt behind that is this awareness of thought also just a phenomena of the brain and everything like that. Uh, maybe because we're surrounded by the materialistic paradigm that that always the thoughts always come back to that and there's always doubt but i guess that's something just that takes time yeah there's unlimited amount of time and i think you know if i've been on that journey too so i'm not here to you know kind of uh, <laughs> expedite your move along journey because i'm right there with you and i've spent years in doubt and in questioning that. And I think doubt is it, hey, that's the cornerstone of what the show, my show is about. 
inquiry to perpetuate doubt. And I think we can continue. Doubt, I think, is the ultimate spiritual thing. You know, you talk about the people that we don't want to be like, that we look at and we say we don't want to be like. It, the the scientists, the dogmatic, fundamentalist, atheistic, biological robot, a meaningless universe, they have no doubt. There is no doubt in their mind. The fundy Christians, the fundy Islamicists, there is no doubt. You know, I talked to a, a woman, very nice woman, but she's involved with the uh, a cult up there, the Ramtha thing. And I, you know, I was kind of giving her the spiel and I said, you know, inquiry to perpetuate doubt. Oh, she jumped in. Oh, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. It's like, of course you don't. You're in a cult. Yeah, it's it's true. And it's that's where, you know, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Where you, yeah, you don't have the kind of the, I don't want to say the intellectual capacity because that sounds condescending, but you don't have that drive to kind of look at the other side and consider that you may be wrong. And when you do wonder, have that. Well, I also wonder that, and I've kind of thought about this for a while, but I think a lot of times people do have the intellectual capacity and they're using it at a very high level to think through the whole thing and say, gee, if I went there, my whole world would change. I was brought up a Mormon. My brought up my kids Mormons. I'm starting, you know, my kid's going to get married. I do this. I, I change that belief. My whole world would fall apart. I can't do it. And in a split second, they run the whole thing and they turn back to some program that's going to get them out of the trouble that they're getting into. It's the same for the Mormon. It's the same thing for the uh, dogmatic scientists, the atheists. Everyone's playing the same game. And we all play that game. We play that game with ourselves, too. You know, I'm, no, I'm not above that, nor are you. We just maybe have, have limited it more effectively and don't let it kind of run our whole program. No, that's right. I think the difficulty is um, trying to think of an analogy I don't know, I'll do the stock markets. Let's go resistance, which is when price goes up and it's. But um, there's a certain level of needing to kind of be um, credible with the society that you live in. And the need to go up, you get up to this level of awareness and you hit that level of, well, I can't really live like this or think like this or speak like this because I'll lose face. So you keep going. And I think it's been able to go through that level where you realize that cred- um, credibility isn't as important as you think it is and it's been able to shift your awareness through that and then you live kind of like these um ascended masters or whoever these you know sadgurus mujis whoever else and jesus i suppose if he existed which i don't know i wasn't alive unfortunately at that time um are these ascended masters who have gone beyond the need to fit in but can still fit in as if playing a role and it's getting beyond that play, being the character to playing the character level. Yeah, that opens up a whole, a whole a lot of different, you know, avenues that we could go down. So I'm not sure because the the counter to that is that there might be something akin to a genuine spiritual transformation that would radically shift us outside of one mode of being to another. And I'm not saying that that's true, but I'm saying that might be different than what you're talking about of being kind of intellectually able to self-actualize, you know, in that sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah. The difference between intellectually realizing that you can be that to actually the shift to being that. Yeah. I mean, here's one thing I think I'm really interested in pursuing, and I'm kind of slowly, kind of gradually getting there, is if you look at folks like uh, Mickey Singer, somebody I really admire, the wrote, he wrote The Untethered Soul, uh, Michael Singer wrote The Untethered Soul, and the, uh, the Surrender Experiment is an international bestseller and extremely, extremely popular guy, lives kind of a, like a recluse down there in Florida. Of course he can because he came, became a billionaire through his own efforts of uh, having a software company, state-of-the-art, right, yeah. you know, kind of like fantastic, fantastic story because his story is that he built that business while surrendering in this yogic kind of way to just whatever was presented to him. Or a figure that people are more can more identify with is Eckhart Tolle, and you can go watch all of his things. And, and there's a bunch of other yogis that are saying the same thing. But what they're saying, one thing they're saying that I think is really important is they're saying there is a physical slash spiritual transformation. We can think of it, a lot of times people talk about it as a kundalini awakening a samadhi experience that is then sustained, but they're talking about it energetically and talking about it as a transformation. And you don't have to believe that or you don't have to not believe it, but it does open up the possibility that we're talking about something akin to both a physical, biological change as well as a spiritual change. And that puts us in a different category now because we're talking about we're talking about these beings the mystics and the ascended masters that you're talking about who stay in this body being of a different type. And again, I'm not saying that's true or I know that I'm just saying it's an important distinction to realize that it's not someone saying, Oh, I read a book and, uh, and thought about things differently and wrote a paper yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a mind boggling thing to consider even being at that level is something you can't really conceptualize of, which I suppose is one reason we we stick to where we are and can't go beyond it. Again, you know, I, <laughs> I think we do. I think we, we do experience it. That's my point. I think, as you so, said, yeah. you, you've experienced it. I've experienced it. We just, we just haven't allowed ourselves to go there. We yeah, snap you just back. Dip, dip your toes in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you dip yeah. your toe and you go, oh, that, 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 not, not, too, not so fast. Hmm. Let me get back to my life. I have four kids. I have a house. I got a lot of things that I really like about it. I'm going to go watch TV later. I got everything. You know, let's not mess that up too much. Yeah, yeah. This this has gone on a lot of much different path than I thought it was going to, starting with near-death experiences and coming on to this. It's good. I like it. Um so let's let's shift shift on to something different now. Something I, I really wanted to ask you about, which is my least favourite kind of um, counter argument to everything parent paranormal. James Randi and his challenge. You see, that's on so many things. That's almost like the bottom line for the skeptics. You provide so many explanations that maybe go against what the skeptics are saying, but then there's always this baseline of well, why hasn't anyone won the James Randi challenge? 
I mean, have you ever spoken to James Randi himself or someone that represents him? I did. I did you speak did? to James Randi. And I spoke with a number of people that presented at the James Randi, J-R-E or... No, J-Ref, yeah. Oh, the J-Ref conference that they used to have. It's It's done. It's over. Stick and fork in it. There's no credibility there. No one talks about it anymore because it's just a sad memory for those folks who have to look back and see how they were duped, how they went to this conference where there are these 20 foot high images of James Randi looking down and they bought into all the things that they said Mm -hmm. they were against. So if anything, it's something to look back on and consider how people can be duped into you know a system of beliefs that outwardly would seem to go against everything they say they're about that's the interesting thing about james randy and the million dollar challenge and all the rest of that nonsense i mean it's the million dollar challenge the million dollar challenge is science you know, Dean Radin has published Six Sigma uh, uh, scientific experiments that have been replicated in 47 labs. Give him the fucking money now. Why do you have to hold it up? You know, I mean, but it's not, it's not real. It's not real. So to talk about it is to bring some reality to it that, that it doesn't deserve. Mm, because it's still very, very widely used as, as that cushion for skeptics. So you'd almost think that it was... Only by stupid people. Relevant. Only by stupid people, and I, I, it just is. It's it's people that are not not. It's what it's all the things that we're saying in terms of as a social phenomenon, as a as a you know exercise in deluding yourself. It's no different than the Noah Noah's Ark thing. It's no different than the flat Earth thing in a way. The flat Earth thing to me is more interesting. The flat earth phenomenon is about, um, to me, is where we're at. So we went through this skeptical phase where that held some weight. And then we've gone through, I think, this, the rise of the conspiracy to the point where people understand that fundamentally the conspiratorial model is a better explanation for almost everything that we see in politics and science in everything conspiratorial thinking is at the cutting edge. So what becomes the new meme? Well, let's push the conspiratorial thing all the way to the edge. Do you believe that the earth is round? Maybe it's a conspiracy. So it kind of becomes this, other turn. I can't tell you. I think there's a conspiracy within the flat earth conspiracy. I can't tell you how many people have approached me and say, you ought to do a show on cons- on uh, flat earth. You ought to do a debate on flat earth. And I'm like, but it's an absurdly stupid idea. I, I understand why people can be kind of, kind of so frustrated with being bullshitted about everything from vaccines to climate to our history that they're they throw up their arms and go hey maybe maybe 
the earth isn't really round. Like I'm telling you, it's, yeah. it's the ultimate yeah. frustration, the <laughs> ultimate pushback on science. But at some point, you got to grab your your senses and say, well, that's just kind of nonsense. I mean, yeah. I yeah. did take a flight from uh, London to Los Angeles, and then I got on a plane and I went to Hawaii, and I realized that the sun was moving as I was moving. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. all the, it's just, yeah. I mean. And I talk to pilots who've flown around the world. I mean, it's just mm. so stupid at so many levels. Why would you debate that with someone? Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's something that you can see for yourself. As you say, hop in a plane, go up, and you can see the curvature, you know, to some level at least. Anyway, and as you say, you see the sun moving. And the, the, the explanations I've seen for the flat Earth just don't don't work in any way. If they If they do work, it's because you've been talked around all these different corners and and you've kind of lost your own mind in believing it and that's where i think modern skepticism is it's passe it it doesn't hold any serious weight and the longer we prop it up i think the longer we just kind of perpetuate it and i've done some shows on that in terms of where it it really does kind of it, it so falls apart at the seams that it's it's kind of just passe and even Shermer, he doesn't have the same he can't put the same umph behind it. He's, if you listen carefully, he's backpedaling all over the place because he, he, he knows that all the real good evidence in science is going against some of the fundamental principles. I mean, the skeptics still don't. A lot of the skeptics, like if you're talking about James Randi kind of level skeptics, they totally don't get it, and they don't even get the consciousness thing. So the consciousness is an illusion thing. They don't get that. You know, you mentioned uh, T-Jump, who, you know, I don't know, he's, he's just an old relic of that. But he starts talking about emergence, and he doesn't even know what emergence is. He goes, emergence, like it emerges from something. It's like, no, man, emergence is like this specific idea. It's not just the word emerge. It's emergence like uh, a whirlpool or a dust, uh, a sand dune or a flock of birds, you know. These guys are not really deep thinkers. These no. skeptics. Uh, yeah, with, with Tom, I mean, he's he's a very nice nice guy, and you can see he's his brain's in in the right place. He's very intelligent, knows what he's talking about. But I mean, with some of the examples you say that he gave of emergencies, for example, the whirlpool, which arises from from oceans and whatever, you'd think, yeah, but that also kind of explains. Do you mean, have you heard Rupert Spira? Yes. Yeah, uh, he he has a good example like that as well. That that can also explain kind of the panpsychism idea that the ocean is all that is, and we are individual whirlpools which are kind of emergent from that, but still part of the whole thing entirely. So you could use that for emergence of consciousness from the brain as the whirlpool, but also that when that whirlpool ends, when the brain goes, you get absorbed back into that whole that whole. Well, it's fine to use it as an analogy. It's just not okay to use it uh, scientifically because when we move it into the scientific, again, if we're going to use that term realm, then emergence becomes a way that we can understand things in through a mathematical model. So we can create a mathematical model of a whirlpool, but we have to know the constituent elements and then we have to provide 
physical forces to those elements in order to model and create the phenomenon that we're observing. So uh, if we want to talk about it just from a you know, philosophical analogy standpoint, have at it. But you can't go from the scientific understanding of emergence for explaining a whirlpool or a sand dune and then say, well, that naturally extends to consciousness and how we understand consciousness unless you answer the fundamental questions about consciousness. What is consciousness? What is necessary and sufficient to cause consciousness? When does consciousness begin? When does consciousness end? Emergence doesn't help those guys answer any of those questions. It's just a way to, they don't realize it, but they're just trying to sprinkle the magic dust of this new thing called emergence onto something that they don't know. You know, my buddy, Dr. Bernardo Castrop has kind of totally nailed that better than I could. It's, it just doesn't hold up, doesn't hold up philosophically and doesn't hold up scientifically. Mm. I mean, Bernardo, Bernardo Castro is someone I'd love to have a chat with. I've, I haven't looked very deeply into what he says. I've seen snip, snippets of it, but he certainly seems to be very on it, if you if you know what I mean. Very in tune with 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 all of this kind of stuff. So I'd love to have a chat with him. I need to see if I can find his email address. Um, but with the whole emergence thing, I mean, it's taken in the mainstream as if that's kind of the basic. We know this is the case, and. Even though, to me, the evidence in support of it could also be taken equally the other way from a kind of a transceiver theory. I mean, the main argument is if well, you change the brain and consciousness is changed, and measurably so. So surely would that not work if you were to take the analogy of a radio? If, which it is, the, the, the signal is received by the radio and expressed, if we were to think of that as consciousness, if you take a hammer to the radio these um the sound that comes out of it is going to be greatly distorted similarly if you hit the brain with a hammer or you hit your head with a hammer consciousness is going to be distorted but that doesn't necessarily entail that the radio creates the signal it's receiving equally the brain doesn't necessarily create the consciousness that it's projecting hey man i'm i'm with you darren but i i think we already covered that and that gets back mm. to why we both were interested in near death experience i like the fact that you said that you know your interest in it is limited to this little quest of this existential question who am i why am i here why am i afraid of dying why am i afraid of not existing anymore near death experience cuts through all that bullshit so people want to sit around and talk about the mind body mind brain <clears throat> problem, panpsychism, emergence. You can spend tons of time, and it's not wasted time, but you can spend tons of time on that. No need. Shift over to near-death experience. The brain is compromised in a way that completely defies our neurological model for producing anything like the conscious experiences that we can that we've recorded. That is just as solid as you can get it. It's just the evidence. No way around that. So all that other shit just falls away. I mean, a transceiver, yeah. all that. forget yeah. it. There was no brain and there was consciousness. So yeah. consciousness must survive beyond bodily death. Biological yeah. robot in a meaningless universe doesn't hold. Hmm. I mean, the only thing with that is, is 
Jan Holden rightly says with near-death experiences is we can only go so far with them to say that consciousness exists and is um, perceivable up to the point when the brain is not working anymore in cardiac arrest where measurable brain activity says we shouldn't be conscious and yet we are. Beyond that, we can't say because no one's ever come back from that. To me, the logical following is that, well, if consciousness is available at that point when the brain is pretty much dead, whether it can be revived or not, that shouldn't happen, but it does. So as you say, that seems to overwrite everything that we under- that we think we understand about the brain. Couldn't agree more. I think that is exactly the point. And even Jan is restricted because she's in academia. She can only go so far. And I, I think that little bit that you added there is the important point, is that Everything has to be reconsidered. The paradigm has shifted, and we haven't totally accepted that. And we kind of want to keep hump, keep Humpty Dumpty back on the wall, and you know all the rest of this. But but no, it it the the distinction that you're talking about that Jan is making again have all the respect in the world for is relatively meaningless. If consciousness exists beyond our current understanding of neurology, of neuroscience, of consciousness science, then everything has to change. Mm. It's finding a white crow, isn't it? Exactly. So to to persist and have it, well, you know, was it five minutes or three minutes or could it be something else? Or we had this mm. burst in these brain rats, these rats, yeah, these brains that, yeah. of rats doesn't, doesn't hold up. Mm. I mean, that's fine. If that, if that can overturn it, then we'll have to look at that, but it doesn't, doesn't work. No. doesn't fit. A good, the, a good one. A good one I saw that made me laugh was regarding out of body experiences. It was a scientific American. Was it scientific American? I think it was, or, or one of the established scientific magazines that said out-of-body experiences have been shown to occur when there's damage to the inner ear. And that's what they are explaining. That's how they explain out-of-body experiences. Fine. Okay, that works when the person involved has a damaged inner ear. Right. What about all these other cases where their inner ears are perfectly fine and their brain's dead? Right. You know, and they, they take that as exp- as an explanation. How does that wind up? uh, So the the, again, I keep pulling back to the bigger question. How does that wind up in Scientific American? Mm. I mean, if you can if you can pull it apart that easily, how does it wind up in that? I think it was live science. Sorry, yeah. Even even better. How does that wind up there? How is that not pointing to? Like when I say conspiracy, you know, and it kind of freaks people out. It's like. It doesn't mean that all those people are getting together on a group chat and deciding, you know, we're going to put this out mm. and that you're going to promote it. Even though some of that might be happening, that's not the the, the overriding way that happens. But mm. if you wanted to, first of all, if you could control the narrative on anything that interested you that had to do with power and or money, you would. You of would. course you would. You yeah. do, right? So why yeah. would we think science is some t- somehow outside of that? Of course, someone is interested, has a motivation to control the message, control the narrative. 
So we mm -hmm. must assume that, that that is in play. An example of that being in play, um, again, it's something I only read very skimmingly, but um, Doc, not Michael Shermer, Rupert Sheldrake um, and Peter Fenwick, I believe, were in a... I'm trying to remember the details. They were in a scientific conference that, and they were shunned, completely shunned and, and removed from it, weren't they? Because of what they were saying, was it the morphogenetic fields or was it the, the death, whole death process? It, it, probably morphogenetic fields if it was Rupert, because he hasn't really gotten into the NDE stuff, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of either indicates, it indicates one or two things, that either their, um, Rupert Jarrett and Dr. Peter Phoenix presentation was so unscientific as was was documented that they were removed under those premises or it's that the scientific community that was holding that conference just weren't ready to hear that kind of thing right and they were systematically or kind of unconsciously systematically removed i don't know much about about that do you know much about what happened there well, there's several of them. You know, the the one that really kind of made a stir is when Sheldrick's TED Talk was removed. Same kind of thing. Well, it was moved, wasn't it, from one section to the, to another? It was initially kind of banned, and then it was moved. And if we know anything about social media, that generally would, would kill it. In this yeah. case, it didn't. And actually, Rupert and I did a show on that. And it's a YouTube that got 300,000 our interview got 300,000 views. So it obviously struck a nerve with people to think that uh, TED Talks has an anonymous scientific board that can make decisions about, <laughs> you know, if, about if, what's relevant and what isn't. It, not what's relevant, what's scientific and what isn't. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have a noted Cambridge biologist, well respected, who is banned by an anonymous scientific board, I, I, that's kind of a, you know, it's not, mm. not what we generally think of in terms of how science, or in this case, you know, uh, what's, what's their thinking, you know, free thought, mm. TED Talk uh, kind of thing works. And, and like I say, it obviously struck a nerve with people. People get it. It's, it's bullshit. It's, it's the Wikipedia bullshit. It's the sanitized TED Talk bullshit where there's an underlying message behind it. And I just think people are way past that for the most part. And the people are still kind of humming along in a kind of half-sleep mode and, and buying into that. They really don't mm. matter. Those are the people. Listening. Those are just followers. Yeah. Those are just followers. Those are just yeah, follower people yeah. that are going to be uh, whatever they're told to think they will think so if mm. you know some if they're told a new meme then they just follow that they're they're, they're not mm. to be paid attention to in the same uh. way with the skeptics i mean if they have a good argument let's listen to anyone who has a good argument but we, we don't have to play that play that game we don't have to grind on that they're done yeah and it's as you say it's whoever's popular and who has the most the biggest following is is going to be Kind of using the the whole philosophical language, which I hate. Um, argument from author authority. Whoever's popular is going to be the. I mean, for example, a good example of that is one of your videos with Dr. Stephen Novella. Right, right. Which which wasn't well received, and you can see in the comments and on the low ratings, they're all 
Novella's kind of followers because he's very well respected and has a large following. You can see they all crowded over to your video and put their opinions based on what they were listening to from him without kind of maybe thinking about things themselves. Yeah, I, I don't think that's for for most of us, Darren, who are thinking about this deeper and looking for answers in the way that you're looking for them. I don't think any of that stuff is very persuasive. Again, I know I keep saying the same thing over and over again, but I've done this for a while and I've talked to these people. There's just, I'm open to all sorts of kind of dialogues. That just doesn't get my juices flowing. It's so stupid. It's so, you're just, it's, it's in the same way again. I mean, I think there's something, there's a deep truth to Christianity and Christ consciousness that I don't totally, totally understand. And I'm still trying to incorporate into this broader uh, understanding of extended consciousness. But, big but, the, the fundy Christian, the mainstream Christian, the religious Christian argument is just stupid. It's just mm, silly. The Bible, the Bible, not even the Bible literists, literalists, the Bible believers. I mean, is it an encyclopedia or a library as progressive Christian? Oh, what's his name now? I forget. Uh, a new kind of Christianity. Uh, anyways, McLaren wrote, the only path forward for Christians is to completely break away from this idea that they have this book that has this supreme, deep understanding of the mind. It just is silly. And we don't really engage in serious dialogue with those people because their arguments are not engaging in any way. And I talk to people, I mean, Rupert, Rupert Sheldrick, like we talked about, is a Christian. I talk to Rupert Sheldrick all day long. He's a genius and he's incredibly scientific and he's found a way to, one, his Christianity isn't that kind of Christianity. It's a personal, deeper spirituality of someone who's sampled a number of different spiritual traditions and is trying to understand that. I can respect that. I can respect that there might be something deeper to his Christianity. At the same time, I think there's limits to anyone who's kind of bought into some of the cultish nature of that. But I'm kind of bouncing all over the place because my real point is it's not I'm against someone who identifies themselves as a Christian. I'm just saying that there's a certain baggage that comes with it. There's a certain set of belief systems that that some of those people in that that identify in that way can kind of pretty immediately be be dismissed as not having anything significant to add to this dialogue. And I just think skeptics are exactly the same. There's no reason to keep talking about them. They just don't raise, they don't rise to the level of intellectually stimulating dialogue that we need to have. Mm. It's just pointless. Mm. It seems that a lot of people have a lot of intelligence, a lot of academic intelligence, but lack kind of the common sense to be able to really question and really look at what what the people on our side of the fence are suggesting. It might be that. I, I, I think that's a that kind of begs the question of what is going on there, you know? And and why do people believe weird things? Mm. 
And mm. I think look, I think we have to have a deep look at cults. And I really mean that. And and we have to look at what it is about human nature that drives us to that sense of community, but also drives us to surrendering our intellect for the sake of acceptance by other people, you know, some of the things that you were talking about. So I think there's a lot of interesting questions there. I just, most of them as they're presented on the surface level in terms of uh, skepticism, those questions are are not interesting. Hmm. Trying to think, is there anything else? We've pretty, I think we've pretty much covered everything quite deeply, haven't we? Oh, Rupert Sheldrake, I meant to ask you, with his something that you looked at doing as well, um, dogs when they know their owners are coming home. I think that kind of feeds into the whole James Ray thing as well. I've read something about about that um, because that was again another thing that was received very poorly, wasn't it? Despite, as you say, Rupert being a very, very highly credited Cambridge professor. Well, I'll tell you um, what, I'll leave you with this, Darren. Anyone who's interested in that needs to go back. There's some old skepticos from years ago with me and Rupert and Dr. Richard Wiseman, who is the guy there in the UK, highly credentialed, quote-unquote respected scientist who just completely lied, deceived, and is exposed in those series of interviews as being, you know, not telling the truth. And Rupert is the one who is telling the truth. Rupert is the one who's, you know, just anyone just go look at that and you come to your own conclusions. 